Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections. A warning to our listeners, this episode contains sensitive material that may be disturbing. Please take care. They learn not only games and traditions, such as the celebration of St. Valentine's Day, but the mastery of words. Last year, when archaeologists detected what they believed to be 200 unmarked graves at an old school in Canada, it brought new attention to one of the most shameful chapters of that nation's history. Cookbee chief Roseanne Casimir stated that there had been a discovery of the remains of 215 former students of the Kamloops Indian Residential School. Last spring, the discovery of what is now widely assumed to be unmarked graves shocked this place and this country. Kamloops Indian Residential School opened its doors in 1890. It was one of 139 residential schools funded by the Canadian government and mostly run by religious congregations within the Roman Catholic Church. Many of these schools closed in the last century, including Kamloops, in 1978. However, just last year, ground-penetrating radar uncovered a burial site at Kamloops with the remains of at least 215 children. In my view, that was a pivotal moment. The eyes of the world then turned to Canada and people were started asking questions. While it shocked much of the world, it was not news to Indigenous people who had always known about the missing children and who had felt the impact of intergenerational trauma ripple through their communities. The broken relationships, the physical abuse, the domestic violence, the sexual abuse. It was also no surprise to the Catholic Church or the Canadian government, who in 2008 launched a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The whole process here has been focused upon truth and reconciliation, as we've called it from the outset with our commission. And the confirmation of unmarked graves was not news to the religious orders of priests and nuns that operated the schools. It was known by the communities that ran the schools that children died while in the care of the schools. And while there were decades of litigation and advocacy leading up to this moment, it's the story of these missing children that most disturbed the psyche of a nation. Now, Pope Francis has heeded the call of Indigenous people to come to Canada and apologize on Indigenous lands for the abuses committed in residential schools. On this special deep dive episode of Inside the Vatican, we're looking into the history of residential schools in Canada the impact they had on survivors, and what Pope Francis's apology might mean in a long but important process of truth-telling and reconciliation. We'll hear from Archbishop Richard Smith of Edmonton, the leader of one of the dioceses Pope Francis is set to visit. How are we going to continue the journey with 
indigenous peoples here in this country. It's not as if we were starting from scratch. We've had long-standing relationships. We'll hear from Phil Fontaine. He's a leading indigenous voice and served as the national chief of the Assembly of First Nations for three terms. We suffered from this overpowering influence in our lives for years upon years. He's also a survivor of the schools, along with Susan Bowden. This impacted our family, this sexual abuse, for many, many years. We'll also talk with Father Ken Thorson, who leads the Lacombe province of the Missionary Oblates of Mary Immaculate in Canada. That's the religious order that ran most of the Catholic residential schools. We'll hear how his community has changed its position over years of listening to Indigenous voices. Today, I very much see my vocation as a participant and a facilitator of conversations whereby people come together and listen together. I'm Colleen Dully. This is Inside the Vatican. So to start us off, Phil, um, could you introduce yourself to our listeners? Yes. My name is Phil Fontaine. I'm an Ojibwe, born and raised in Manitoba, the Saugeen First Nation community, situated at the mouth of the Winnipeg River. As a young man, Phil was first elected chief of his own community. Then he became grand chief of the province. And rising to an even larger stage, Phil served three terms as national chief of the Assembly of First Nations. And we try and represent the interests of First Nations in their interactions with the federal government, Canadian Parliament, and provincial governments. One of the issues that emerged in the 1980s and 90s was the residential boarding school system. And Phil had first-hand experience of the schools. Being separated from my family, that was the greatest injury I suffered from my 10 years in residential school. I mean, I can talk about sexual abuse or physical abuse. Yes, I experienced those, but being away from my family was probably the most traumatic. So in residential school, we were not to have our own minds and our own thoughts. This is Susan Bowden. I'm from the Kawasis First Nation, which is a Cree and Ojibwe tribes. We're mixed blood there. We spoke with Susan a couple months ago when a delegation of First Nations, Métis, and Inuit people traveled to Rome to speak with Pope Francis. You can hear more of her story in the Roundtable episode we released earlier this year. In it, Susan goes into great detail describing the different forms of abuse that she experienced and witnessed in residential school. The first act of violence was, just as Phil said, removing children from their families by force. And if our parents didn't allow us to go to residential school, they were put to jail. And it was up to the Indian agents to decide if it was six months, six days, or whatever. Then there was corporal punishment. There's many, many strappings to the point where the skin would come off a child. They were strapping so hard. and. We had to watch those because it was a lesson to us. And sexual abuse. And I come to realize that my two little sisters were severely sexually molested by the priest at that time, to the point where my one sister almost died. And violent attempts to eradicate indigenous culture. There was many, many people that got really strapped for speaking their language. English was the only language to speak. This physical abuse was meant to beat the culture and language out of Indigenous children. 
kill the Indian, save the man, was a popular slogan when many of these schools were founded. And conversion wasn't just religious, it was all-encompassing. There is a view in society that it was of critical importance to reshape us, to change our way of thinking, to adopt different traditions, and in fact, embrace everything that was not us. Susan and Phil's accounts of residential school are confirmed by thousands of stories just like theirs. And collectively, they spoke a powerful truth. And when we came out in public about our experience, we laid bare the soul of the country. And the picture that emerged was not a nice one. I recognize that I live on the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Anishinaabe and Algonquin Nation, whose presence here reaches back to time immemorial. My name is Father Ken Thorson, and I'm the provincial of the Missionary Oblates of Mary Immaculate OMI Lacombe Province in Canada. The Missionary Oblates of Mary Immaculate, or the OMIs, was one of the first religious orders to settle in Canada and to partner with the government in establishing residential schools. The order was founded by St. Eugene de Mazenod in France in 1807. Its mission was first to serve the poor in southern France, but by the time of de Mazenod's death, Oblates had expanded their mission throughout the world. The Oblates are still known for their missionary work today. It's what first attracted Father Ken Thorson to the order. At the time I was joining, the Oblates were looking at the possibility of starting a new mission in Kenya. And this intrigued me. And it was a very, how would I say, it was a naive understanding of mission. And yet, you know, if I'm honest, that's what drew me to the Oblates. Nearly two centuries earlier, the first Oblates arrived in Quebec and very quickly began moving westward. In our very early years in Western Canada, we the Oblates, we adapted ourselves to the way of life of the First Nations and Métis people that we were working with. It would have been an itinerant mission style. The priests and brothers would live with and they would offer catechesis, education to the Métis in their summer and winter camps across the plains of Canada. But the theological motivations for this ministry were tangled up in imperialism from the start. Can you tell me about how the Oblates, the missionaries, understood the work that they were doing? It was a theology that saw salvation as being only possible through the Roman Catholic Church. And outside of the Roman Catholic Church, there was no salvation. The residential schools were initially started by the Canadian government with the Indian Act in 1876, which supposedly would fulfill treaty obligations to Indigenous peoples by establishing schools. But in reality, it marked the beginning of an assimilative process and erasure of Indigenous culture. The goal was to quote-unquote civilize Indigenous peoples, and the means of accomplishing this was through education. Since the Oblates had a long missionary history with Native peoples, the government entrusted the residential schools to them. And it was those partnerships, the partnership with the federal government and the taking on of the administration of the schools that changed our missionary our mission approach and also I would say, our relationship with First Nations peoples. Partnering with the government was certainly a turning point, but assimilationist policy isn't entirely to blame. 
because it wasn't just long-standing relationships with indigenous people that the Oblates brought to the table. A prevailing theology in the church at the time made it all too easy to justify destroying indigenous culture. I would say there was an approach that saw Catholicism as superior and that the approach to mission was one of imposition. Other religious orders shared that sense of superiority, and they too fell in line with the Canadian government's policy of cultural destruction. So a lot of these priests and also sisters who would have been running missions to Native people in the 19th century were coming from Europe, and they brought a strong sense with them that to live a Christian life, one had to live a quote-unquote civilized life. This is Kathleen Holscher. She's an historian of U.S. Catholicism. One had to be married the right way, raise one's children the right way. And Kathleen is the first to point out that colonialism and even residential schools evolved differently in the U.S. and Canada. The history of the participation of Catholicism in colonialism and empire in North America is very different depending on whether you're thinking about Mexico versus Canada versus the United States. And yet, despite these important distinctions, Kathleen says that throughout the Americas, the church and state used each other to accomplish their mission and agenda. It's really interesting to me the way in which Catholic missions, as a Catholic enterprise driven by religious motivations, ideas about heaven and hell, ideas about sin, ideas about what makes a sort of Christian person a Christian person, I'm interested in the ways historically that that kind of project came to support and constitute a state project of settler colonialism, which was a project of dispossessing Native people of land and political power in order to open up space for white settlement and U.S. political power here. And then, of course, the result was disastrous, right? Corporal punishment, something that was only really eradicated in, in quite recent days. What was different here? Why do you think you've got a particular case to make? The extent and the, the intensity of the abuse that went on and the fact that we really had little choice in this matter. We were dealing with an institution or body that represented the highest moral authority in, in our community, and we just didn't question what went on. In 1990, Phil Fontaine, then the Grand Chief of the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs, was interviewed on Canadian national television. His interview came just hours after he had shared with senior Catholic Church officials the abuses he suffered while attending Fort Alexander, a residential school run by the Oblates of Mary Immaculate in the Eastman region of Manitoba. When we first spoke publicly of the abuse in residential schools, we wanted a public inquiry and we wanted an apology. And so out of these interventions on our part came apologies. And the first was by the Oblate Order that ran the two schools I attended. And so people started asking, well, an apology is good. It's a good first step. Then what? Joe Fontaine had had an interview on CBC where he disclosed his own experience of abuse at an Oblate-run school. Father Ken Plerson again. And so around this time, allegations by survivors 
at residential schools are being made and just a growing awareness of the scope of the abuse. It was then, in 1991, that the Oblates of Mary Immaculate apologized for abuses perpetrated under their watch at Kamloops Residential School. Our decision to apologize in the way that we did in 1991, I think it came from the growing recognition from a variety of sources within and outside of the Oblates of the painful legacy, intergenerational legacy of residential schools and the understanding that acknowledging this and expressing our contrition would be important steps on the path to reconciliation. The Oblates apologized for the part its members, quote, played in the cultural, ethnic, linguistic, and religious imperialism that was part of the colonial mentality, and for the collection of problems that haunted the social fabric of Indigenous communities as a result of their schooling experience. Indigenous communities and parents, families, didn't have the choice as to whether or not they wanted their children to go to the schools. They were compelled by law, and we participated in that. We also participated in the intentional erasure of culture, religion, and language. It wasn't until many years later that they saw the lasting effects of this. And so young people returned to their communities 5, 10, 15 years after being at a school and had lost that connection to family and community had missed out on all of those little moments where people learn what it means to be a parent, a wife, a husband. All of that, I think, led us to an understanding that the schools themselves, the removal of children was somehow fundamentally at odds with who we say we are as church and the place that we give family in the church. We did something that was completely antithetical to that. In the actual apology, I'm going to read an excerpt. The Oblates wrote, We wish to apologize for the part we played in setting up and the maintaining of those schools. We apologize for the existence of the schools themselves, recognizing that the biggest abuse was not what happened in the schools, but that the schools themselves happened. So in other words, the Oblates didn't take this bad apples approach that sometimes we see where they apologize for a few bad apples. They're apologizing for the entire presence of their mission in these residential schools. There was a line of thought that said, certainly there were bad apples, as you say, and there were problems with the schools and with the system, but that for the most part, there was good done. Educations were given and Indigenous communities and individual Indigenous peoples benefited from their time at the school. The Oblates acknowledged that the bigger issue was the existence of the schools themselves and that this sin was systemic. It was rooted in a European superiority complex prevalent across the Americas to which they fully subscribed. It was called the Doctrine of Discovery, and it provided the religious justification for the conquest of indigenous lands. But there were also the personal sins of their members. It had come to light that Oblates working and teaching at Kamloops had sexually and physically abused some of the students. In the words of the Oblate Order, this was inexcusable, intolerable, and a betrayal of trust in one of its most serious forms. But how was that apology received at the time? We asked Phil Fontaine. Well, the first apology 
by the Oblates wasn't a big story. Huh. It wasn't widely known that the Oblates had apologized. And I think it was not well managed in terms of public relations. When you want to get your story out and you want as many uh, people to learn about it, I don't think it was well done. So largely uh, went unnoticed and uh, people forgot about it. Despite the PR fumble, Phil thinks this was a good step forward. I believed that was the honorable thing to do. The Oblates recognized their role and that it was less than honorable, even though they came into the picture with honorable intentions, good intentions. The apology was complicated, even for the Oblates themselves. Father Ken Thorson was just entering the OMIs at the time the apology was made. Many Oblates struggled with the apology. Many saw the need for it. And they were grateful that the Oblate leadership were taking this step. But there were those in the community who felt that the apology didn't acknowledge and even disregarded the work of many Oblates and other religious staff who'd given their lives, who had worked hard in the schools. And so there was great debate within the community, I understand, about the apology. And it wasn't just the Oblates that struggled with the apology. I think in the same way that Oblates struggled with it, the hierarchy struggled with it. When we're coming to grips with our sin, it seems we never go there easily. They, like everybody else, struggled with the acknowledgement that there weren't some benefits to the schools. There was a contention, and I think people would have said it was the way of the time. If we'd known differently, we would have done differently. And somehow that explains what was done. We, the Catholic Bishops of Canada, gathered in plenary this week, take this opportunity to affirm to you, the Indigenous peoples of this land, that we acknowledge the suffering experiences in Canada's Indian residential schools. On September 24, 2021, the Catholic Bishops of Canada recognized publicly for the first time their church members' participation in this oppressive system. Over the years, some bishops in Canada had individually made apologies for abuse in their diocese, but until now, they were yet to speak as a body of bishops. We, the Catholic Bishops of Canada, express our profound remorse and apologize unequivocally. We are fully committed to the process of healing and reconciliation. The bishop's apology had no trace of the old justification that this is just how things were done. In the end, we can't make arguments for sinful structures and sinful methods that we know today are sinful. We can't go back and justify them. This is precisely what the Oblates were challenging. Let's revisit our history as a church. And that's what was really beginning to happen. Let's allow Indigenous people, the stories of Indigenous people, to inform our understanding of what happened. And how did Indigenous people respond to this apology? I don't know what happened after that, in the weeks and months after that, but I certainly know that the Indigenous people that I've spoken with since about the apology would say that they're grateful for the leadership that the Oblates took in acknowledging the sinfulness of the system that up until that point, that really hadn't been said and couldn't be said. But once the Oblates unanimously said this, it became something that the church and wider community had to wrestle with. And I think Indigenous people were grateful for that. 
Around the same time of the Oblates' apology, others began to apologize as well. After the Oblates apologized, and there were apologies coming out of everywhere, and, you know, it was not easy trying to make sense of all of these apologies and what they represented and whether these were a true reflection of not just their denominations, but of the perspectives of Canadians. It would take 17 years before the Canadian government would offer a public apology to the Indigenous peoples of Canada. The government of Canada sincerely apologizes and asks the forgiveness of the Aboriginal peoples of this country for failing them so profoundly. Prime Minister Stephen Harper's apology was issued in 2008, almost two years after the Indian Residential Schools Agreement which was a settlement agreement in a landmark class-action lawsuit between survivors and perpetrators of abuse. Archbishop Richard Smith of Edmonton explains. Back in the 80s and the 90s, there were a number of lawsuits that started to be launched against the government, and often those were third-partied against the church or sometimes directly against the church over time. That developed into class-action lawsuits. Around 86,000 Indigenous survivors sued for abuses committed in the years they attended residential school. And after years of litigation and what Phil Fontaine called a 150-year journey of tears, hardship, and pain, the Indian Residential Schools Agreement was reached. The agreement paid $2 billion Canadian dollars in compensation to school survivors and provided additional funding for the Aboriginal Healing Foundation. It also called for a full-scale investigation of what happened in the schools. One of the determinations that came out of that whole resolution process was the call to establish a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Our commission, we know that part of the obligation that we have is to look at what happened, to gather the truth, to talk to the survivors and have the survivors put on the record their stories so that those stories would be the foundation for a dialogue about reconciliation in the future. So that people will understand why it is that there are families that cannot function properly back in Indigenous communities. Why there are so many people who do not know who they are, who cannot stand up and explain to you what it means to be Anishinaabe. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission process began its work in 2008 and ran until 2015. It involved a number of what they called national events, gatherings in different cities across our country in which Indigenous peoples were invited to come together. And it gave them an opportunity over those years to tell their stories, tell the stories of their experience in residential schools. And it involved multiple volume reports after all of that. It ended with 94 different calls to action to government, to church, to citizens in general to say, all right, if, if we are really serious about reconciliation and moving forward, here's the roadmap. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission was the largest of the government-funded and sanctioned efforts to understand what had happened in the residential schools. But it wasn't the first. Almost 30 years prior, in 1963, the federal government commissioned a report into the lived conditions and experiences of Indigenous peoples across the country. Professor Harry J. Hawthorne, a social anthropologist, found that Indigenous peoples were Canada's most deprived and marginalized population. He summed up their status as citizens minus, and residential schools were largely to blame. Professor Hawthorne advocated for an end to all forced assimilation programs, especially those carried out in the residential schools. In 1969, the Canadian Department of Indian Affairs took exclusive control of the residential school system, 
removing it from the hands of the churches. But it would take almost three decades for the system to be completely dismantled and abolished. The last residential school was closed in 1998, but the delicate work of reckoning with and healing from the abuses continues. 30 years later, we're still living into this apology. One way the Oblates did that was by participating in the Canadian government's Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Under Father Ken's leadership, the Oblates have continued to take steps forward according to the commission's calls. They're working to compile archival documents about the schools and make them available so that Indigenous people can learn their family histories. The Oblates publicly denounce imperialism, and they're involved in helping Indigenous people recover their cultures and languages. They're also looking at ways to decolonize their present-day ministries. So rather than impose a solution the way the Oblates first imposed a religion and the European culture, they're following the lead of Indigenous people. So an example of this would be Sacred Heart Parish. As we gather, we acknowledge a Treaty 6 territory on which we are standing or being seated is the ancestral traditional land. It's one of the sites that Pope Francis will visit when he comes to Canada in a few weeks' time. For a number of years now, the Oblates, with the Indigenous leaders, elders, knowledge keepers, have been working to find respectful ways to integrate Indigenous ritual, culture, and spirituality into the Roman liturgy. For instance, when you enter the church Sunday morning, an elder will be at the back or in the center aisle offering to anybody who wishes a smudge. Smudging is an indigenous practice of purifying the mind, body, and spirit. Tobacco or sweetgrass is burned and then moved so that its smoke is smudged across the body. And so people will line up and smudge. And the smudge is kept burning, is attended to through the liturgy. And people may smudge before they do a reading or they might smudge before they participate liturgically. The music is indigenous, the drum is central. The great amen is prayed in the four directions. The vestments of the clergy are often from moose or deerskin. So clearly everything evokes the reality that you're in an indigenous worship space and everybody feels welcome. The Oblates have taken responsibility for residential schools, the abuses, and the trauma that they caused Indigenous people. But when it comes to the larger church, there's been a diffusion of accountability. And many questions remain. Who's to blame for the residential schools? The church? Religious orders? The government? A few bad priests and nuns? And what does taking responsibility look like? To place those questions in a larger historical framework, we went back to Kathleen Holscher. You actually had Catholics as early as the late 19th century, not criticizing boarding schools as such, but criticizing the Carlisle model, in part because it was breaking up families. The Carlisle model was a quasi-military academy that first popularized the techniques we saw adopted in Canadian schools. Corporal punishments, cutting off students' long hair, and even changing their names. And while some Catholics were critical of the Carlisle model for separating families, they weren't confronting the presence of the schools themselves or taking responsibility for the violence they inflicted. I think one of the things that you've seen in the Canadian context is a lot of transferring blame. 
So you have dioceses saying, well, we didn't have anything to do with it because it was the religious order. <laughs> and then you have the Canadian bishops like saying, oh, well, you know, it's not appropriate for us to make a blanket statement because it was all of these different individual orders that bear responsibility. Though the Canadian bishops as a whole didn't apologize for the residential schools until last year, 2021, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission did convince them to take a few first steps as a body. Here's Archbishop Smith again. In fact, their final national event was held here in Edmonton, and I participated in that and offered an apology at that time on behalf of the bishops of Alberta and the Northwest Territories. After that, the bishops of Canada said, okay, how are we going to continue the journey with Indigenous peoples here in this country? So it was proposed at one of our plenary sessions that a small group of bishops that we've since rather unimaginatively called the Bishops Working Group would come together and find new ways to reach out to Indigenous partners who would be willing to engage in dialogue with us. When the Truth and Reconciliation Commission issued its final report with the 94 calls to action in 2015, one of those calls to action was for an apology from the Pope on Canadian soil. It was something that the Canadian bishops had already been working on. Back in 2009, an Indigenous delegation met with then-Pope Benedict. The Canadian Conference of Bishops at the time, again, recognized the need to be connecting with the Holy Father, and Pope Benedict was very, very open to that. But it was a small group that went, spoke to the Pope, spoke beautifully. Most Holy Father, today is a joyous day for the human spirit. It is a momentous day for our people and for our country, Canada. While the past must never be forgotten, our destiny lies in building a future with enduring foundations, the cornerstone of which must be forgiveness. Our elders teach us that we have choices in life. We can build up or we can tear down. We can forgive with generosity. The Assembly of First Nations National Chief of the Day, Phil Fontaine, said to the Pope, it was very direct, very clear, but very open to reconciliation and moving forward. And the Pope did speak from his heart at that time. And he spoke what he called words of regret. We offer you, Most Holy Father, our hand in friendship, reconciliation, and yes, hope. Many people saw that as the apology, heard it as the apology, were satisfied with that. Others always looked for those words, I am sorry, and didn't find that that was sufficient. I think, too, for whatever reasons, the communication around it was not good. Because if you talk to people not long afterwards in the Indigenous communities, even in our parishes, weren't even aware that it happened. Again, the lack of communication and PR around this visit was discouraging. But it made the church in Canada realize that it needed to send another delegation to Rome. In 2021, shortly after the unmarked graves were discovered at the Kamloops Residential School, they announced a visit with Pope Francis. Well, it would be difficult to talk about the most recent encounter in Rome without reference to Pope Benedict XVI in 2009, and then the apology by Prime Minister Harper in the House of Commons. Today we recognize that this policy of assimilation was wrong, has caused great harm, and has no place in our country. Fourteen years later, we are in Rome at the invitation of Pope Francis, as survivors of the residential school experience. The meeting happened at the end of March 2022. I was there in Rome for the delegation as we met with Pope Francis. And each of you, for your presence here and for the prayers you have offered to heaven, 
grato. I'm grateful. And it was really extraordinary. He spent in the space of a few days, four hours, with the various delegates just listening and listening. That's all he did, just listen. Over the past days, I have listened attentively to your testimonies. I have brought them to my thoughts and prayers, reflecting on the stories you told and the situations you described. I thank you. On the last day of the delegation's visit, the Pope finally spoke. He said, for the deplorable conduct of those members of the Catholic Church, I ask for God's forgiveness. And I want to say to you, with all my heart, I am very sorry. And I join my brothers, the Canadian bishops, in asking for your pardon. So from your experience listening with these Indigenous people, having these conversations, what have you learned about what makes for a good apology? What makes for a good apology, and again, I'm reflecting back what I've heard from the Indigenous themselves, we just need our experience validated. They will often say to me and to others, we do not need you to heal us. We can do that ourselves, thank you very much. But part of that process is to have others validate that what we went through was, in fact, what we went through was real. And an apology that acknowledges that really gets to the heart of what they're looking for. What are you hoping for out of this visit? It will put to rest the question of, you know, whether or not the schools should have happened in our 1991 apology. We clearly say that they shouldn't have happened. And so we need to do the work of healing and, and reconciliation of the brokenness that we had a, a significant role in creating. It's interesting that you say that it's going to put to rest that question. I wonder if you could tell me more about that. I mean, there's a big question right now about what the Pope is going to say, if he'll take this bad apples approach or if he'll talk about the system as a whole. Does that make a difference to you, whether it puts the question to rest? My belief is that it wasn't a question of, as you say, a, a few bad apples. It was systemic. And the brokenness of the schools came from the sin of the system. And this is what we need to acknowledge. And my hope is that Pope Francis's words somehow speak to that. And that's what our people are looking for. They want to hear the Holy Father say it was the Catholic Church that was ultimately responsible for what descended on the peoples of our country, the first peoples. We take full responsibility for those awful experiences, these tragic moments, this dark part of your history. And we are sorry for the church's complicity in this period of our history together. And so with those words, I think we will begin a process of, as I said in Rome, turning the corner and begin the work of rebuilding the fractured relationship between the Catholic Church and our people. In the meantime, it's not the end of the story. It's the beginning. There will be a long, difficult journey ahead of us. It begins by making sure that people understand what the church means by that. They will have to tell us what they're prepared to do in concrete measures in walking this journey together.
Pope Francis, who was deeply moved by the encounter, expressed his desire to come to Canada to meet with indigenous peoples there. Expectations and hopes are high. No one knows what the Pope will say, but everyone knows that Francis is a Pope of powerful gestures. He arrives in Edmonton on July 24th. His first meeting will not be with the government of Canada or the Canadian bishops, but with the indigenous peoples. You can follow along with Vatican correspondent Gerard O'Connell's reporting on the visit at americamagazine.org. And you can follow Jerry on Twitter at Jerry O. Rome. Inside the Vatican is a production of America Media. This deep dive episode was produced by Maggie Van Dorn and Ricardo da Silva. Our executive producer is Sebastian Gomes. Audio engineering by Frank Tucson. Special thanks to Jerry Kelly, Amelia Jarecki, Archbishop Don Bolin, and Denise Lajimoutiere. These deep dives are the result of a lot of research and production, so if you've enjoyed this episode, the best way to support our work is by purchasing a digital subscription to America Magazine. You can do that at americamagazine.org slash subscribe. Another way to show your support is to share this episode with a friend or on social media. America Media will be covering Pope Francis's trip to Canada, and you can follow Vatican correspondent Gerard O'Connell on Twitter at Jerry O. Rome for live updates. For America Media, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Deli. We'll see you next time. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.